Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through registered representatives of Cambridge Investment Research and broker-dealer member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services through Cambridge Investment Research Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Cambridge and Cornerstone Financial Consultants are not affiliated. Welcome to the Journey Mindset Podcast. My name is Sean Ulrich, and I'm a financial advisor at Cornerstone Financial in Washington, Missouri. And I am joined today, as always, by my co-host, Ron Shear. And Ron is a former financial advisor with a wealth of knowledge on all things investing, so we are lucky to have him today. And Ron, man, what is one thing you are doing to enjoy your journey this week? You know, week? Sean, it's the spring of the year, and we're moving into summer. It's the beginning mm. of car show season. Oh. And you know, I uh, I really enjoy that. It's a... Mm. Uh, it's a fun thing, and and these gearheads are nice people. They're they're really <laughs> they're really good folks to be around. One of the things that I really like about them is that uh, uh, the thing that you share in common is that you love you love machinery and you love mechanics and uh, and uh, uh, you know the beauty the beauty that an automobile can actually mm. they can be works of art. They truly can. Oh yeah. But the thing I like most about it is the personality of people who. Uh, who build these cars or own these cars? There, there's some commonality there. They're usually pretty, pretty stable folks and not yeah. too political, and and uh, <laughs> uh, that's kind of refreshing today. I can I can say from my standpoint, seeing people that really enjoy cars is if you want to see somebody light up full of life, oh, get yeah. to talk and get to uh, have them talk about their cars. No doubt about it. And, and for me, Ron, uh, the, what I'm doing to enjoy my journey is my men's group, my Life on Life group. It's mm-hmm. a nine month deal that's wrapping up here next week. So we had a little bonfire last night. It was a little chillier last oh, night. Oh yes, it was. And uh, so we were able to do that, kind of share our experiences and uh, get a better feel for what we can do building into next year. And uh, just have a good time to hang out and maybe probably enjoy that last cool bonfire of, of the season before we head into summer. So I enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed it. And our topic for today is going to be exploring the question, what are the signs of a bubble? And now to be clear, we are not doomsday people no, here at Cornerstone not. Financial. We're relatively positive with a healthy dose of skepticism, I would say. But given our current market environment, I think it would be unwise to not at least consider or discuss the possibility that we could be in for a pullback in our market at some point in the next 12 to 18 months, barring increased government intervention that continues to keep this market afloat. And so we're going to actually review back over and see what are some of the take-home lessons from three memorable market crashes that might help us make wiser investment decisions as investors and potentially give us some warning signs along the way. And if nothing else, we're just going to dive into some financial education, which is what we're all about. So to kick off our show today, Ron, what would you say is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of a market bubble? You know, Sean, I've said this before. I, I read all the pundits and all the sages and uh, and the economists, and because uh, and, 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 you you need to if you're going to be successful in this business, you have to know what uh, what other people are thinking, what they're saying. Plus, the fact that you don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel, you just have to just know what's going on. One of the things I think about when when I hear the word bubble, I have. Uh, 
I have my clients uh, back in the day kind of divided into a couple of different groups. And when I think about a bubble, I would always think of my con most conservative clients, those mm. who had uh, not been overly favorable to the market. And there's nothing, it's no, no shame, no fault. I'm not saying that in that, but that's just how God built them. They were very conservative. But at about the time, the most conservative group of clients started asking questions about buying mutual funds <laughs> or buying company stock. That's when I knew that was a red flag for me that uh, we're close to the top of the market. That's hmm. uh, that's about when the bubble is about to burst. When everybody's and, and you know what, money. Sean? Hmm. That proved to be much more accurate than uh, than the pundits and the sages and what they were saying. That's real. That's real right there. I like that. That's good perspective. And the three different time periods that we're going to explore today are number one, the roaring 20s, and then the Great Depression that followed. Number two would be the dot-com crash. Number three is going to be the housing market crash. And then we're going to kind of conclude with where we are today in 2021 and give you a little bit of our takes on uh, just where we are. And so let's examine each of these and see what we can learn as to what are the signs of a bubble. And we can set the scene for examining some common characteristics of a bubble thanks to Jeremy Grantham, who is a British investor and co-founder and chief investment strategist of GMO, a Boston-based asset management firm that manages over $118 billion in assets under management as of 2015. I was looking for a more recent figure, but let's just say they manage billions. They manage a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and what he describes as a, a bubble has three parts. Number one is historically high valuations. Number two is incredibly high acceleration of stock prices. And number three is crazy or speculative behavior. So that is a framework that we're going to operate off of when examining these three market crashes compared to today. So taking a look at the crash of the Great Depression and all that led up to it, Ron, I'm counting on you as our history guy to lead <laughs> us through this, man. And through my research, it appears as though the scene was set in the time right after or right before the 1920s when America had emerged as one of the victors of World War I. Right. And as many can imagine, a country that had just won a war is going to want to come home and build and achieve prosperity. And that's exactly what we saw in the 1920s. So, Ron, what do you think of when you think of the Roaring Twenties? Well, I think of uh, bathtub gin and, and, uh, <laughs> and those uh, crazy flapper dancers, yeah. or whatever they call them. But, uh. but I also think of a time that, uh, and I think you called it right, because World War I had just uh, ended in, uh, in Europe, and, and uh, the uh, U.S. Army was certainly uh, a part of that. We weren't the military force back in that time hmm. that we uh, became uh, uh, just a, a decade or two later. But uh, anyway, we played our part. We were a little bit, a uh, little late getting into that, and that was uh, because it wasn't really, wasn't really our war. It, uh, hmm. it was more with the Germans and the Brits and and uh, in the European theater. But but anyway, it was a time that that the war was over, and it was a war to end all wars and. And uh, it was uh, it was a time of jubilation and a time of celebration. And I think as a country, 
I think the country just had a great time. And we went, <laughs> went into party mode there for several years. Uh, yeah, and, and it was named the Roaring Twenties for the country's success during that time frame where we saw right. the rise of radio advertising so news and information could travel quicker. And household products became, you know, started to boom, such as vacuum cleaners and electric washing machines. And, you know, I can just picture a family, you know, thinking, all right, we've made it. We're, we're getting to this point where we can really start to have some luxuries in our life. There you go. And, and due to the rise in profits and the booming economies, the banks started to become very friendly with who they were lending to. So you started to see debt levels rise. And on top of that, you're starting to see a rise in people that wanted transportation with Henry Ford's. Model T gaining popularity, and if we're all getting richer, we got to have cars too. That's right. We got to get from point A to point B. So the next wave of money that flowed uh, into what most people had not been able to do at that time, which was invest in the stock market. And as we all know, when large masses are buying, that means a rising tide lifts all ships, and we start to see asset prices appreciating, making a lot of people a lot of money. But just then is when we start to run into some trouble. And because there was so much money to be made, people were deciding to take out bank loans in order to invest that money into the stock market. And not only that, not only individual investors were taking out loans to invest, but some banks were doing the same thing. But the banks weren't taking the money from their own cash reserves. They were taking the money from everyday working Americans who trusted the banks with their money. So this is a challenging question, Ron, but I'll ask you anyways. And I was trying to put myself, you know, in the situation of a family in the time period of the Great Depression. And if I just assumed that I could trust the banks with my money and they were borrowing against my knowledge, Ron, can you think of any other direction that that families could have gone in that situation or any other decisions, you know, given what was going on during that time period? That's tough. That's a tough question. Probably the answer, the short answer, there probably really wasn't much that they could have done yeah. because the, uh, the people who typically were the greatest losers in the banking crash of, uh, of, the, of the 20s uh, were not people who had money, borrowed money on margin and invested in the stock market. They, hmm. they, it just wasn't those folks. Those were the people who, who suffered the greatest damage were the, the farmers in rural Missouri and rural America and most of the co- country was still an agrarian economy back in that time. Uh, they were the big losers. It was they, they were hurt. They certainly weren't people who had speculated in the stock market. But they woke up one morning and found that the bank where they had had a couple of hundred dollars, and that would have been a big account back uh, in that time frame. Uh, it was all gone because the banks were closed, and uh, and there had been a, a run on the on the banks, and that was uh, uh, people who. Uh, uh, were lucky enough to get to the bank early enough, got their money out, and uh, so I mean it was uh, it was just an escalating situation. It just went from one thing to another, until it uh, finally uh, the whole system shut down and the banks actually closed for a, p- a period of uh, uh, months and years. Yeah, and what you saw was that investments ended up making you know in that market close to two hundred and eighteen percent from nineteen twenty two to nineteen twenty nine if you're tracking what the Dow Jones Industrial Average was doing. And when the party finally started to slow down, production was decreasing, companies, you know, the production, they couldn't keep up with their stock price, and debt levels had risen to very dangerous points. And by the end of, of 1929, you saw Black Thursday and then also Black Tuesday, which was said to have started the Great Depression. And at that time, markets lost $14 billion in one day, 
which was a heck of a lot of money in the 1920s. And the Dow fell for three years after that, losing 90% of its value from its high in 1929. And to circle back to the banks and their fraudulent activity, people are only getting 10 cents back for every dollar that they lost and what they thought was safe in a bank. A lot of the banks shut down and unemployment reached its highest level in U.S. history at 24.9%. So let's run through that time period through Grantham's framework. Number one was high valuations, and the prices had doubled very quickly and in some industries, which was very high for that time. So we're going to say check on point number one in Grantham's framework. Number two was the acceleration of stock prices, which was 218% over a seven-year period of time. We're going to say check on his bubble framework. And number three was crazy or speculative behavior, which banks and people investing with the money that they borrowed, I'm going to count that as a check as well as far as crazy or speculative behavior. So, Ron, any last thoughts on our first bubble situation in the Great Depression? It shouldn't come as any surprise at all that it all melted down because it was just – an irrational exuberance uh, to own and to keep buying in the market uh, when there were signs of uh, of a failing economy and the market had reached its top and the economy had reached its top. And you know, the one thing that we always remember about the national economy, ours and around the world, is it only goes up for so long and then it has to have what's a correction, what's called a correction. Hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, and that, that, uh, that is so typical, and I, I have to say, Sean, we're in the midst of a very, very long, long, long uh, bullish market uh, in our economy. And quite honestly, if you talk to a lot of people in our business and a lot of economists, uh, we, we don't think that there's going to be a correction just very soon. But hmm. it's eminent that eventually it's going to come back, and we're probably maybe just a little bit overdue for a, a, a correction, but. Uh, here again, the fundamentals uh, today are somewhat so different than they are uh, compared to the, to the 1920s to begin with. The bank industry has to have major, major cash reserves now, yeah. and, uh, and that the government uh, requires that. And, uh, and we also have what's called federal uh, insurance. We have FDIC insurance so that your money that you do put in the bank up to certain levels is guaranteed by the federal government through FDIC insurance. For sure. And, and, you know, I think, too, that uh, being able to have that good perspective heading into the second point, talking about the second bubble, uh, it's just going to give us good framework for what's going on currently right now. So the second bubble that we're going to talk about is the dot-com bubble crash. And reviewing back over the history of the dot-com bubble crash, it appears as though it was really started when people started to realize the enormity and the potential of the Internet, starting with a company called Mosaic and then eventually shifting to a company called Netscape that made browsing the Internet much easier. And as entrepreneurs and big companies started to realize the ease of the transfer of information, we start to see an event happen that, you know, it appears was relatively unique for its time. And despite the company Netscape not raking in huge profits, it still decided to go public through an IPO or an initial public offering, which was based largely off of the hype around the potential of the company, not unlike what we're seeing today. And the situation was unique because prior to that time period, people were looking for companies with solid balance sheets and a good history of profits, 
But this was so widely used, uh, me talking about Netscape, right. people just figured it's got to be a success, you know? So the result from the IPO was that its stock price doubled in a day and its market cap rose to $2.7 billion. And this in turn led other companies to see the end result and to think to themselves, I've got to get in on this internet thing, you know? Some exactly. Some call it the internet age. And the underlying theme that you started to see from these internet age companies was that was that they were making some profits, but not nearly, you know, as slow and steady as investors of old would have liked to have seen. But given their potential, new investors were flooding them with money, despite the unimpressive profits that fundamental investors usually like to see. And companies were operating off the idea that losses now meant larger profits down the road. And with some of that new money flowing in, companies spent money on advertising and acquisitions and fancy offices and big-time paychecks and all-expenses-paid vacations and parties for employees. But by 1999, the NASDAQ had doubled. And then we got into what some would call Y2K, where people thought that computers were going to crash. You saw some pretty incredible growth from people trying to get all that they could out of these dot-com companies. So, Ron, give us some perspective on the mania surrounding the dot-com bubble or Y2K in general. Well, it was just a crazy time. It was, uh, we were coming, uh, you know, 1999, and we were going to change the calendar uh, on January 1st of 2000. And, and uh, a lot of people in the, in the country were of the opinion that the computer had been set up, uh, you know, with... Uh, uh, the 1900s in mind, and that that, that they would <laughs> that they would fail to operate in the year 2000 <laughs> when uh, you know a stroke of the uh, clock after midnight on uh, December 31st, and it, it uh, created some hysteria. There were some some government uh, intervention, and some precautions were taken. It turned out that. Everybody did what they always did. They went to their New Year's Eve party and <laughs> and had a great time and woke up January 1st. And guess what? They went over to fire up their PC and the computer still worked and uh, <laughs> nothing had really, really changed it. But, you know, I mean, they had people's attention to the extent that we thought maybe the power companies would fail because of the computer, the computer uh, changing from one millennium to another. And, and it just... Uh, it's it's kind of funny now, but it really wasn't all that funny back in in those <laughs> days because it actually it just it was in kind of a serious vein. But uh, you know, it was much much uh, much ado about nothing. Yeah, and you could tell that it was at a breaking point when you started to see some people leaving their day jobs to try to day trade stocks yeah. full time. Yeah. And on March tenth, two thousand, the Nasdaq reached five thousand. 48 points, uh, you know, that's a bubble 2,000 times the size of the underlying earnings. And two years later, the NASDAQ bottomed out at 1,114 points, which was a 77% decline from its peak. So let's run that crash through our framework provided by Grantham. And number one, Grantham's framework is historically high valuations. <laughs> 200 times earnings, check. Yeah. Number two would be, would be incredibly high acceleration of stock prices. And what you saw was some of those companies right before Y2K, right before 2000, were right. up 300, 400, 500%. So, yep, check on that one. And then crazier speculative behavior. I think you can also lump in that, that huge increase in price with crazier speculative behavior. So I'll ask you this, Ron, as we wrap up this section. How did the dot-com bubble crash in the early 2000 impact your view of growth investing versus value investing? 
Well, I can tell you one thing that happened to me is we were leaving church one Sunday, and one of our one of our clients, and who shall remain forever nameless, but, uh, <laughs> was somewhat critical about uh, about the performance of one of his funds. It was only up thirty uh, some percent for the year, and uh, when he had a technology stock that was up a hundred and forty nine percent. You know what was I going to do to to get things turned around. Well, <laughs> so, so, you know, coming out of church was really not the most appropriate time to do that. So, but anyway, after, uh, after some meaningful conversation, um, you know, it, it was just a crazy, crazy time and, and it was irrational and it was irrational exuberance. And that's not my term. That was a, uh, a term that our former, uh, fed, uh, chairman, Alan Greenspan used. And, and he used that pretty, pretty regularly and he was wrong most of the time but uh, when it came to this he was absolutely right it was irrational buying there was an exuberance it was just absolutely craziness and uh, but things did settle down the way they always do in the market you push mm -hmm. too much value into the market over too short of a period of time and it's a it's like a balloon it can only push take so much air and and if you put too much air in a balloon, what happens, Sean? It's going to pop, baby. And, and that's exactly what happens with the market. And that's not uh, that's not just a once-in-a-while thing, but that happens almost every time when it uh, mm. when it's an unnatural growth in an industry that uh, really is, uh, at that point in time, the, the technology sector was somewhat baseless. There was just so little technology there. Mm. But, uh, I mean, it's more solid now as a sector. Yeah, for sure. And the last bubble that we're going to explore is going to be the housing market crash of 2008 or the 2008 financial crisis that we saw only eight years after the dot-com bubble crash. Right. And this one was really tricky because the idea behind what people were trying to do, it actually makes sense on the surface if you didn't really look deeply at what was actually underneath. Given our time constraint, you know, there's there's no way that we're going to be able to go into as much detail on this one, but there is a great movie that documents what happened here called The Big Short. And there's also a book by Michael Lewis called The Big Short, which I'm assuming the book came before, but either one, you can check into either one, which does a phenomenal job of describing what happened here. So let's roll through a high-level uh, overview of what happened in 2008. And the idea was that, you know, people thought of mortgages as, quote, safe investments because everybody expects people to pay their mortgages. And what investors didn't see was that the underlying construction of what actually comprised some of these investments they were making. People thought that they were investing in high-quality, high-grade mortgage-backed securities, when in reality they had no idea what kinds of loans that were being handled that handed out to basically anyone who would apply for, uh, you know, for for a loan based off of, you know, regardless of credit history or income, coupled with a fraudulent rating agency who was also rating these far below investment grade, you know, investments, quote, safe, misleading the public, you know, to investing in a market that they had really never seen before. So, Ron, what do you remember from the time before the housing market crash? Uh, it was a time that was uh, a fairly joyous time in our country what you did see was that the construction uh, interest rates were incredibly low and had been been low for quite a little while and that was uh, uh, that was uh, that uh, inflation that mr. Greenspan always thought he saw but he never really did you know I guess hmm. and that's not a slam on Alan Greenspan but I think when history is rewritten he probably uh, won't go down as a great Fed chairman because he did some damage there and I think one of the things that he did, 
was he kept interest rates artificially too low for too long. And what happened then is it got to the, the popular thought that anybody in this country could live the American dream. Certainly don't want to uh, done anybody for wanting to live the American dream, but not everybody is going to be able to have a house and a, a country squire, a Ford country squire station wagon <laughs> with a parked in a driveway and a white picket fence around the, around the house. And that's, I'm talking to the baby boomer generation so mm. much, uh, Sean, not that's meaningless to you. But point mm. is, is that people thought that uh, everybody in this country could have a house. So you had people that were buying homes uh, and the banks were giving loans and they called them ninja, ninja loans. No job, no income, no job. Mm. And uh, it was just absolutely craziness. And uh, they were they were loaning the down payment for the house and everything else. And people just really it pulled people into the housing market that just there's no way in the world god love them for whatever reason they weren't able to to uh to make the payments on the loans and it uh and then and then uh, we magically wove these mortgages into some really and they called them toxic investments Hmm. uh that uh and they were mortgages that were all woven into some good mortgages in the in these uh these bond portfolios and when it went when it went south and went bad, it went all at once. Definitely, and I was going to say the eventual fallout, you know, due to this crazy structure of supposedly mortgage-backed securities, was that insurance companies wanted in on the action, and I think this is what you were talking about, Ron. They were selling what was called credit default swaps that essentially allowed right. investors to bet on if someone was going to make their mortgage yep. payments or that or not. You know, so so many different institutions and investors were directly tied to what was going on, coupled with, like we said, the fraudulent rating system that led to the eventual third crash that we're now talking about. And there was a jump in, in credit from nine hundred billion to sixty-two trillion in credit insured by these insurance companies. And if you didn't listen to our show on what drives the markets, you need to go back and listen to it on the Journey Mindset podcast on Apple uh, Podcasts or Spotify. And if this doesn't give you an idea of how fraudulent the system system was, I'm not sure of what does. But 75% of the reason why this all went tumbling down, they were called CDOs or synthetic mortgage-backed securities, 75% of them were uh, had the highest safety rating. And after this all tumbled down, 70% of those defaulted. So if that doesn't tell you that they were fraudulent, I don't know what else does. And insurance companies couldn't keep up with the fallout, and this led to the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. And the biggest frustration with this whole ordeal is that the investment banks that were responsible for all of this received the most help from the government. And we run this situation through our bubble, you know, our framework that, that Grantham gave us, number one, high valuations. In terms of housing, absolute check. Right. Acceleration of prices, check. Number three was crazy or speculative behavior. This one might, might take the cake for crazy or speculative behavior from what we thought were people looking out for our own best interest. Definitely a check right there. So, Ron, any final thoughts on the housing market crash before we wrap up our show and quickly discuss where we are today? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it was a situation where things just uh, got way out of control and the government agencies that were supposed to supposed to be watching over this uh, just absolutely mi- failed miserably. And I'm of the opinion, and I don't think I'm, I'm unique to this, but uh, I think there should have been some people, quite honestly, that should have gone to jail over it. And I think maybe a few did, but uh, I think it was kind of a wink and a nod. But there were some people, I mean, this was out and out larceny, 
at the highest level that we've ever seen in this country. And uh, it affected so many people in such an adverse way that uh, it was absolutely horrible. And, uh, uh, you know, and I, I hope we learn a lesson from this. I, I, I got to be honest with you. I see some similarities in the housing marketplace today that we saw back in the, uh, back in the 2005 to 2008 era, era when this finally did come to a head and actually blew up. Mm. And if we run where we currently are through our, you know, in our market in 2021 through the bubble framework, if we ask ourselves, do we have, number one, high valuations? Yes, we do. Do we have, number two, incredible acceleration of asset prices? That would be a check in 2020. And number three, do we have crazy or speculative behavior? That would also be a check with the game, uh, GameStop and AMC trading that we saw take place, and then SPACs as well, which we didn't even get into because we don't have the time. And we're now at a point, you know, that we're asking ourselves, are we two-thirds of the way to a bubble, or are we much closer than that, you know, if we're checking off all these boxes? And I'd wager to say, Ron, it depends upon who you ask. So given all of our current market situations, Ron, I'm not asking you if there's a bubble right now. But I just wanted to get your general thoughts on the framework and kind of where we are today in our markets. Well, it's a very manipulated economy at this point because the government, I mean, as a, last week when you went to the mailbox, there were a lot of checks that went out. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's, a, it's a, the, some people that, that get those government checks, they need them. And then there's just a whole lot of people that are getting those big government checks that just don't need them. Hmm. And, uh, and, I, and I get all, a little concerned whenever there's an arbitrarily artificial manipulation by the government. And uh, we've gotten, we found ourselves to a point, Sean, where we have a tremendous need for employees in this country, but we can't get people to go to work because they're making more money staying home, drawing unemployment, and getting a government check than it is uh, that they would get uh, working. It's a very unhealthy situation. I'd be, I'm not screaming fire in a crowded theater. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not an alarmist. But I do think there are some signs there that need to be paid attention to. Yeah, and I think kind of where mind has where my mind has gone during this time period is where can we still try to find some good growth, but then also let's take a look at where we can get some downside protection inside of that portfolio, or where can I be positioning myself cash-wise that if there is a downturn, I can try to take advantage of that over a long period of time. I just think that's a safe and, and wise way to view kind of where we are with our current market environment. So once again, we're not ringing the bell saying it's going to happen tomorrow. Not at all. You know, but we are uh, encouraging people to just be aware of the current market conditions and how uh, effective dollar cost averaging can be over a long period of time, even through some challenging market conditions like what we have today. And so the reason for the podcast and the real heart behind all of our messages lies in the gospel. We believe that God sent his only son Jesus to this world with a message of good news. And the good news is that we as humans did not need to earn our way into heaven. Instead, we need to repent of the current way that we live, living for ourselves in our own personal glory, and instead choose to invite Jesus into our lives to follow his word, what we believe to be truth. Ultimately, we believe Jesus, after living a perfect life here on earth, was put to death for no other reason other than saying he was the Son of God, thus being put to death for our sins, which he knew was going to happen. Again, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is something we did nothing to earn. It was a free gift from God. We know that after Jesus died, we believe he rose again three days later, appearing to those on earth who had deserted him before his death, ultimately ascending back into heaven. 
And after Jesus ascended back into heaven, we receive what Jesus called the Holy Spirit to guide our lives and decision-making. We now have the freedom to live for God, bringing glory to God as a response to the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. And we wholeheartedly believe that we were all created to do good works, rooted in truth, what we know to be God's word, driven by love, with this newfound freedom as a response to this good news. So as always, be sure to connect with us at thejourneymindset.com or visit our company page, cornerstone2invest.com and reach out to us at Cornerstone Financial in Washington, Missouri at 636-239-5000 if you would like to connect and learn more about what it would look like to invest with us here at Cornerstone Financial. Our goal is to always get to know your particular situation and to see how we can help. Big thank you for tuning in today. We love being on 99.9 KFAV.